0: This is Playback Daily for Tuesday, the 11th of January. I'm Democratic, and today we learn all about xenotransplantation. There's one for the Scrabble board. We get a fierce thirst for coke, and we have to watch our language. Here's a look ahead.
1: And you were out in the road with the ball from the age of eight, but you might have had to give up actually playing it until this came along.
2: I stopped maybe in the 40s, so have this back again. Go to goal! Sorry. See, <laughs> so you can't stop. Um, yeah. Even mid interview.
3: Am I being self-compassionate? Do I have joy in my life? Am I able to access sadness? Am I able to have a good cry if I'm feeling sad? Am I able to access anger? If I'm feeling uh, losing somebody, if you've lost somebody, or someone's died, can I anger access both anger and sadness? Can I access, and no, it's a big one, hope. Because we, we recently saw the Irish Times that about 20% of Irish people don't have hope anymore.
4: That's a big number.
5: It's um, a very exciting morning. I think it, it uh, gives me an insight of what it was like to, to wake up in December 1967 when the first human heart transplant was uh, was performed.
6: I was actually looking at the aorta at the that was replaced, and I could see it opening and closing in front of my eyes. And I think that wasn't in my body when I was born. That that little part there is... Not original equipment (laughs) that we would describe as an engineering term.
0: It's that time of year when our resolutions have us reaching for the runners, but exercise needn't be an all-or-nothing affair. So, limber up, leapfrog over the high-intensity interval training, the tabatas, the reps, the sets, and gently saunter onto the pitch for walking football. Yes, walking football. And Evelyn O'Rourke explained all to Claire Byrne.
1: Of course, I'm now an expert, now a bit of an armchair <laughs> <laughs> expert. But at its simplest, it's a slower paced version of the traditional game of football. And the idea really is simple, it's that everybody can play. And the organisers say that when you're getting older and maybe you can't dribble with the same agility as when you were younger, it can be difficult for people. So they say that walking football offers a little glimmer of hope for those who have football really in their blood. And the idea is that it's safe, it's fun, it's a good way for older people to exercise the rules are pretty straightforward and inclusive it's non-contact the ball must always be below head height and the pace for players should never be faster than a light jog but the old familiar joking and slagging your teammates is absolutely essential so as you say I went out to meet one of the many groups that have begun springing up around Ireland to see them in action and I went out to meet the players at the Rockfield Park in Artane in Dublin where one of the organisers the chief organisers
7: Paul Comiskey told me more We're in Rockfield Park in our here. As you can see, most of the lads would be in their 60s, so it is open to all ages. See, it's generally retired people.
1: What is walking football?
7: Walking football is exactly the same as football, except it's slowed down and we have no contact. So hopefully, it'll be always injury-free.
1: And the idea is what? It is aimed for people who maybe loved football back in the day but can't keep quite up with the pace and running around the place but don't want to let go of that joy of playing football.
7: Their head is still there saying, I can still play this, but my body is not. So it's simply an equaliser.
1: It's people who loved football always, right? Yes.
7: Like, I'm after trapping a few of these lads who were playing five a side, probably thinking of giving her up, saying, I'm getting a bit too slow for this. And I said, I'll balance you out with other guys who are the same as you and we can keep playing.
1: And how did you come across it?
7: I came across it actually on Sky Sports News. And I thought, this is great. This has to be in Ireland. And it was very small here. I went up to a group who'd been gone for a year and there was only five or six. Within three weeks, I had 12 us playing. Since then, we've just got more and more. I've had lads here, probably helped them with dreams, got them playing in Daly Moon Park. You know, fellas loved it. I'm here in Daly Moon Park. I used to be on the terraces there. Things like that.
1: Tell me about then the effect of COVID lockdown, because obviously you are here today because it's outdoors, it's no contract, It's actually working well as something within this very weird time for sports.
7: Yes, we stopped in March 2020. I found people getting in touch with me and said, no, nah, I'm getting fed up with the house and all this. So in May, I just said, I'm going down with a ball, jumpers for goalposts in the local park. If you want to come, come. And we went down the first night and there was 10 of us. And I thought, this is doing these the world of good. But most of it all is they are simply enjoying it. This could be the reason for someone getting out of bed today. Fair play,
8: Paul. Paul Comiskey there. And Ev, you got to speak to some of the footballers who are taking part. So what did they have to say about it all?
1: And it was a really common theme, Claire. Just And just to say, of course, women are absolutely welcome to take part. The day I was de- there, there were two women there, but it was mainly men there in the day. But again and again, they told me, you know, I used to play five-a-side, I used to play schoolboys. But they'd realised with great reluctance as they got older that they mightn't really get signed up for Man United. So they'd let the training slide until they heard about this. And it's just a great way to keep playing a version of football, a game that so many of them have been playing and loved for so many years. And the atmosphere was just great. It was fun. There was lots of chatting and band term it's extremely sociable but you'd want to have your wits about you verbally as well as physically but here's some of the players tell me about why they enjoy taking part and i start with secondary school teacher derek reed he has introduced this to his school pupils now and claire i even learned what a clogger is
9: well i love football and i played up until i was into my late 30s and i said i wasn't able to catch the young fellas and paul organized a walk and football so i turned up and i love it i even have the lads in school playing it, so. i think it's just a great way of playing good football Passing and moving. The simple thing. We might be older than a twenty-year-old, but we can still pass football. The cloggers are gone. You know, you what's know, a clogger? There would be old-school centre half that would just blast the ball up the pitch and because it's below a certain height as well. It's all pass and move, so it suits us great.
1: And you're out of breath.
9: I am, we're, we're out and about three times a week, as I said. But you put a good effort in, and I'd recommend anyone. I'm fifty-two, so I'm, that's too old for me. But so when was the last time we played football? You know, and it couldn't maybe in twenty years, and then they come up to us and they love it. It's a growing sport. I love it. You know, it's great as a school teacher as well on a Wednesday afternoon to toddle up here.
1: What do you teach?
9: I'm a religion and history teacher over in Cabra. I'm all telling the lads they all I'm mad into football so there you go
1: <laughs> you're
10: still chasing the dream chasing <laughs> the nightmare is more like it <laughs> my name is Joe Trainer. you've just finished the you out of breath no I've been man of the match every play of this park I have covered breathlessly and Joe why are you here you got a good sweat walked up now the lads playing here against us in the, the red bibs we don't normally play against them our game is normally a bit more physical the lads don't tackle from behind whereas we'd have no compunction about sticking someone up against the railings and taking the ball from
1: them I heard it was very polite this walking football
10: it is today because you're here
1: what there's usually an ambulance on standby is there
10: yeah like a horse race <sighs> a bit like fairy house
1: and come here how often do you play
10: we play once a week but we also have an exercise class through Dublin City Council.
1: And did you play football in your youth?
10: Very badly because if anyone's going to hear me talking there's no way I can spoof because they know I was brutal. I played schoolboy with Kevin's boys the junior football at like Whitehall Rangers for a while. I was uh, on the Friday night team holding up the bar.
1: But you've always loved football. It's always been part of your life.
10: I've always loved it. The last time I played organised football was over 35s and that's back over 20 years ago. So, so this is magic for you? Absolutely, yeah. As I said earlier it is quite polite. Anyone fall away get back, go, but it is polite, but it's good exercise as well.
8: I'd say it is, and part of the appeal is that regardless of your health or your football ability, you can join in, Evelyn. And some of the players are really grateful for that exercise and what it offers them.
1: Yes, well some of them say look I hadn't got to play for years and this offers them that chance to get back to play the game they love not just watch it from the sidelines and it gives them the chance to reconnect with it all and others say look i have definitely got fitter since playing actually it's quite funny they were saying they're not supposed to go faster than a light jog but a few of them saying to me I'm getting very fit now I'm finding that very hard but uh, the team atmosphere really helps as well for them to come back and again so when I was there I also met a father and daughter playing together Jerry and Catherine Malone and Catherine came along to support Jerry. and as you'll hear even <laughs> eyes are always on the game Claire even during an interview.
2: We've been all playing since eight years old and I'm nearly 74. Lucky game is a drug <laughs> and it's very really hard to stop. It's crazy well, we're all crazy you know but it's gentle it's passing and no crazy running or mad stuff no mad tackles and so on and we do it twice a week and we're all in bits. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have a brace on my knee.
1: You have a brace on your knee and you're playing? Yeah, I have
2: to see a specialist to help me in this in the next month. <laughs> stop and pass it, that's the game. Stop and pass.
1: And you were out in the road with the ball from the age of eight, but you might have had to give up actually playing it I until to, this came along.
2: I stopped maybe in the 40s, so to have this back again, go to goal! Sorry, go, go. <laughs> see, see the way it gets to you, you can't stop. Um, Even yeah,
5: mid interview.
2: Yeah, to get something like this at my age. To come back to football is, is a dream. It's absolutely amazing because it was finished until walking football and uh, we had fellas in their 80s playing.
9: Ah, no, you did not.
2: Eddie, Eddie didn't do a lot, but he got in goal, you know. Well, Go, 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 go. Sorry. But it's just to take part. It's crazy. These are all mad people. Tomorrow, they'll be going around. Oh, what did I do? What did I do?
1: In pain tomorrow, but yes. they'll come back again.
2: They'll come back for more and more and more and more and it never stops. It's something you've been doing all your life and you had to stop for so many years and then the like of Paul brought it back and we remembered we were great up there in the head but there we can't do anything (laughs) that's the game hi I'm Catherine Malone
1: What do you think is the joy of walking football? Why is your dad and all these so drawn to it, do you think?
2: I think it's just so good for them to get back out and have their own kind of group as well and have something to do without putting the strain on their bodies. Totally safe and it's great fun. My dad loves it and he never misses a game. You know a bit about football. A little bit from my dad, yeah. I started coaching girls' soccer for under nines. I kind of went into that not knowing much. So this is great for me to learn a lot more as well about it. My dad kind of helps out as well with the, the training for that. So you know, they just have such a laugh. It's great fun for them.
8: Catherine there and uh, Jerry Malone Jerry wasn't going to stop for you anyway all eyes on the game as you <laughs> said listen we're getting loads of messages uh, saying that this is a new Patter has been in touch and lots of other people you know Father Ted pioneered walking football 20 years ago and so he did <laughs> he touched on such a good idea so if people are listening Evelyn and they want to find out more about the walking football groups where can you find out where there are other groups on?
1: Well you can get lots of information on walkingfootball.ie and uh, yeah it's been around I think around a decade now but it really seems to be just taking off which is great. So many groups. For example there's one tonight in Kulak and the recreation officers from Dublin City Council for example are really involved in the groups that I was talking to and supporting it. Um, they cover the rent for example because you have to remember as well what's great about this is how cheap it is for people. I mean it's a few bibs and a few balls and away you go. Groups across Dublin, Limerick, Kildare that I could find and growing and all you need is that runners and a little bit of knowledge of the beautiful game Claire. but just in case you aren't convinced yet here are some final voices from the, all the enthusiastic and passionate players that I met out at Artane at training. James Healy.
10: You're out of breath I'm now? Out of breath. I'm probably the youngest one yeah. Uh, Why are you here? What is it about uh, this? I am part of a company called fiveaside.ie. We've been working with Paul over the last couple of months. We've been trying to grow the participation in the sport. It's absolutely brilliant, you know. We have an app for organising fiveaside games. So we've we've been actually playing in the, the games over the last maybe five or six weeks.
1: We so came as a professional and you've yeah, now signed yeah, up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, have
10: been talking to people over in the UK, kind of seeing how it's grown over there. It's absolutely massive over there. So hopefully it just grows, you know.
1: So you're working off the Christmas dinners and all the selection <laughs> yeah, and
10: all the Christmas beers yeah absolutely yeah I think this is my level at the moment I'm kind of getting back from injury as well yeah. so I would like to kind of take part in the faster game as well as this you know but this is just great to get you kind of back into kind of level of fitness without getting that injuries or out to worry you getting injuries because it's that bit of a slower
11: pace you know Paul Lambert
1: now, Paul, why are you here?
11: The kids said to me, the walking football is on. And they're always a bit hesitant to join and stuff. So I missed the first week. Yeah. So I said, I'll go down. And since I've been down every week, I could since then. And we always love football.
1: That's what I'm getting from always. everybody, that you always, from a yeah. young age, loved football.
11: And it was just thing that DCC and the FAI said. They wanted to get the men over 55 doing something active. And football was the big attraction. And the fact that we all get on with so many guys, we slag each other all the time. Most of it is on WhatsApp, because uh, we wouldn't say it to their faces. <laughs>
1: What is it that brings you back again?
11: It's a good workout, and I feel good after. It. But I really enjoy the hour that I spend with the lads and just having the crack. It's not serious, but it's a little bit serious. When you're on the ball, you're, you think you're Maradona. Other guys think, they're Johan cry for what have you That's all we want to do, is see good play, nobody getting hurt. And we don't make enemies, we just make friends out here. The first few weeks, we were barely able to walk around. Now we're trying to stop running. Well, because we people
1: it. were so unfit at the start.
11: We were able to shuffle around, but the fitness session on Tuesday morning, that really strength that toned us up, you know. You can see the difference on day, we progress. I feel a lot healthier than I did. Years ago.
1: Good goal there.
11: <laughs> I think that's the only goal to scored. That's why they're cheering. <laughs>
0: Paul Lambert chatting to Evelyn O'Rourke on Today with Claire Byrne. And for more, check out walkingfootball.ie. In a first-of-its-kind surgery, doctors in the University of Maryland Medical School have successfully implanted a heart from a genetically modified pig into a human. And the patient, a 57-year-old man, is in recovery. The surgeon who performed the operation,
6: Dr Bartley Griffith, had
0: this to say.
6: We've never done this in a human. And I I like to think that we have given him a better option than what continuing his therapy would have been. But whether it's a day, week, month, year, I don't know. Um, Probably the biggest risk is now. We seem to be past what we consider the hyperacute rejection phase that we would normally have seen in an animal organ that wasn't specially treated. So we're preparing for the next attack on his organ. We have designed a treatment plan to try to account for that.
0: On Morning Ireland, Professor Emer Joyce, consultant cardiologist specializing in heart transplanted heart failure at The Matter in Dublin, weighed in on the ramifications of this medical breakthrough.
5: Oh, well, I think the most important thing to say, it's it's a watershed moment. It's um, a very exciting morning. I think it, it uh, gives me an insight of what it was like to, to wake up in December 1967 when the first human heart transplant was uh, was performed. But of course, we know from that it took at least two decades before we, we have the successful heart transplant operation that we have today. I think xenotransplantation, which is the formal term for transplanting organs from animals into humans, has actually been around as, a, as an experimental and theoretical concept for quite a number of decades. But as you heard there, it's been limited by, by the inability to switch off that recipient's immune system enough for them to ignore the fact that the animal organ was so so, so foreign to their immune system and what's really happened over the past number of years and i think what made yesterday happen was a confluence of factors came together other advancements alongside surgical advancements and primarily in gene editing techniques so you know this this pig heart had to undergo major genetic modifications in order to have the you know have the outcome that we've had that we've seen since Friday you know it's it's very early days it's it's day four into this patient's phenomenal journey uh with this with this genetically modified pig heart but that you know these genetic techniques had to come online alongside the surgical techniques alongside you know special organ support systems for that pig heart and and thirdly you know anti-rejection it sounds like they use quite novel anti-rejection strategies so A lot of factors had to come together, but it is still very early days. Mm.
0: Is there a reason why the patient, why he wouldn't have been suitable for a human heart?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I can't comment on this individual patient's case, but unfortunately, it's not uncommon that we have patients that, despite having end-stage heart failure, may be ineligible for a human heart transplant, or indeed a heart pump, which is another uh, technology for patients with advanced heart failure, the most common reason, and I suspect excuse me the reason in this case is that you know, if patients come to us at a time when their condition has already advanced so much that uh, they would be unable to, to survive or to derive a meaningful quality of life benefit from going through what's often quite an arduous process, you know, not just the surgery itself, but a very, very intensive aftercare. and, and unfortunately that, that can be the case. Now, many people
8: will welcome this development, but I've a feeling that it may make some people a little squeamish.
5: You know, I think, um, just like I alluded to, in, you know, in nineteen sixty-seven, these, these advances, you know, for for science and innovation and medicine to come together, they're, they're they're often these these great giant leap advances can often be associated with with a degree of of discomfort. I think it's important to say, as exciting and, and watershed as this moment is, and it it truly is um that you know there is many hurdles to overcome before this becomes something that it that is ready for prime time and that is ready for you know that is routinely adopted in in all of our transplant centers including our own i think it's something that we would you know is, is probably more realistic for for a medium term solution and you know in the in the meantime there there are a lot of advances in the more shorter term that are more relevant and i think this case outside of the the transplants of the of you know xenotransplantation also highlights a number of advances that we would like to see in the shorter term and that's more you know tailored anti-rejection strategies and also these organ support machines that can actually help to to facilitate the support of the organ and um, can help actually to increase the usage of of even you know human human heart organs so Mm -hmm. I think it's exciting but it is very provisional and um, and but it, it is uh, it is, we will be watching this space, um, I think, over the medium term. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's important to say that that donor organ shortage is a constant limitation for, for uh, human organ transplantation. And so, you know, any strategies to, to potentially overcome that, you know, are, are very, very, very exciting, but very early days. And could it happen here? Could this technology be implemented mm-hmm. here? It could. I mean, we are, you know, we are just like other national transplant centers you know we we are um at the cutting edge we we have a, a huge team of experts together but as i said this will be something that will need to go many many iterations of um of, of trials of regulatory you know approval and of um you know of of i suppose clinical uh, expertise and and practice before before it is ready so i think it is as i said it is some time away but um, it is certainly true that um, that it is a major advance in terms of the ability to increase that that donor pool. But again, it's it's day four in this particular person's journey. And I think we'll have to watch what, what happens next, both in the short term and then in the more medium term very closely.
0: Professor Emer Joyce chatting to Rachel English on Morning Ireland. And when Ray Darcy heard the news about the successful transplant, who was the first person he thought about?
12: Tom Dunn. How are you doing, Tom?
6: <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. Roy. I can't believe I'm the man you think about when you hear stories about pigs' hearts.
12: <laughs> well, that, but it, And I'm not making that up. That, that you were, you came straight into my head. Uh, what does Tom <laughs> think of this? And, and I said, well, sure, get him on and ask him. Uh, so when, <laughs> when, you, when you woke up to that story this morning, what did you think, Tom Dunn?
6: I was, I was fairly amazed, fairly amazed. I know it sounds like science fiction, and and it really does. Um, A genetically modified pig's heart. They took three genes out, three pig genes out. They put six human genes in. Holy moly. Uh, And apparently a pig's heart is very similar to a human heart, the same size and all that kind of stuff. And and they altered uh, genes to do with its growth rate, because it grows at a different rate to a human So, slowing down how it grows, so that it won't, you know, give you problems in that direction. It it sounds absolutely like science fiction. I, I, I find it hard to believe. And of course, just
12: just to clarify for people, the reason I thought of you this morning is because you have, as part of your human heart, uh, a valve made out of pig tissue. Yes. Yes. I'm very slow to say pig
6: tissue. I really am, (laughs) for reasons that (laughs) I can't quite get my head around. I find. When doctors and, and, you know, cardiologists refer to it as a tissue valve, I feel it's very scientific and, you know, I I feel very safe when they say that and and it's all great. When they refer to it as a pig valve, it just goes down an
12: Arthur Daly route there that (laughs) I just feel feel less safe. (laughs) We've spoken about this before, but a question I never asked you, is it actually a valve taken out of a pig's heart or is it a bit of pig tissue? Yeah, you see, this is where this is where my close your eyes and don't ask questions okay, uh, doesn't do right. me any favors.
6: I found a lot of what was going on a little bit scary. Yeah, and to be honest, I didn't really want to know what went on during the procedure. For instance, I, I just kind of said, I, I look forward to going in, and I look forward to coming out of that particular place. Don't tell me what you're doing to me. And I've, I've stayed there. I haven't, I haven't asked any questions at all. And as regards to the pig valve. I don't know. Was there a real take involved or do they grow these things on Petri dishes? I, I don't know. You don't know. And OK. I, no, and I, I hope it's a Petri dish. I'll tell you the
12: truth. Right. Oh, so you don't want to know. You don't want to... Right, OK. No, I don't. Yeah. Coincidentally, you were 57... When you had the operation. Oh, well, and this guy's 57 yeah. as well. I that's just a, a thing I noticed. Yeah, no. I know. I, I, like... I
6: noticed it too, right? D- did you? <laughs> I right, noticed okay, it right. too. Yeah, I did. And I'm 57, and
12: so did... maybe that's why I noticed it. <laughs> oh,
6: I, 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 when, when I had that operation, I had uh, I really had a two year best before date on me at that point. Right. Um, I had a 70% chance of dying in the next two years. That man there had a 100% chance of dying. Mm. Um, right now, I don't know if he's sit up eating soup. Uh, <laughs> That's his Dad used to say, um, but i it's a better place than he could
12: have been? Isn't he? Yeah. So the the FDA have given it a sort of a com, uh, an emergency compassionate dispensation, you know. So this is for right. this is for really yeah. experimental treatment, uh, where the, the 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 doctors can prove that the person, as you say, is a hundred percent going to die. So they've agreed yeah. that that this is their last their last shout, their last hope, uh, and they agreed yeah. to be really excuse the pun, but they agreed to be guinea pigs for experimental surgery or treatment. And that's what this guy has done. Uh, So they've no idea what's going to happen next, really. Well,
6: it was the same when the first heart transplant, wasn't it, all those years ago? I vaguely kind of remember that. Was it in South South Africa or something? Dr. Bernard or someone like that? That very famous doctor was in it. And that person having the first transplant had no idea what was going to happen next. But I know they lived for a good while and heart transplants have become...
12: Not quite routine, but, but I know people with who've had heart, heart trans- yeah. transplants. Yeah, who are like, living normal lives. Mm. It, this, this is called xenotransplantation. Uh, and they did it back in 1984. Baby Faye, uh, who was a dying infant, lived for 21 days with a baboon heart. Wow. And, and they've used uh, a pig's kidney for um, a brain-dead human. Um, I, right. I don't know how they get permission to do all this sort of thing. It is, yeah. it is as you say, it's quite scary, isn't it? It's sci-fi, it's futuristic, it uh, and yeah. you, you're, you're fearful of what the, the the long-term consequences of this will be and where it will stop. But anyway, this is this is what we know at, at the moment, and uh, the, the, the the kidney actually functioned uh, for right. a short amount of time outside um, the, the patient's body. Uh, so the, yeah. the and. I'm looking at the stats here. They, you know, huge waiting lists all over the world for organ transplantation, um, and they can't meet the, the 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 demand. So, if they were yep. able to get this right, it would revolutionise yeah. um, medicine. Uh, that's that goes without saying, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. So you you had all the stats there. So they they they've taken out some of the the um, the pig genes that they found uh, yeah. would would lead to rejection, uh, and then yeah. to, to help sort of accommodating the pig's heart in a human body they've they've put in six human genes into it
6: yeah I, I, it's amazing now I don't know what they'd have to do to my valve yes. to make me accept it because I, I don't take a, I just take an aspirin every day as a blood thinner but like there's no possibility of my body rejecting what's gone inside of it so right. I don't know how they managed to achieve that but I'll tell you one thing I live a totally normal life I, I just have some aspirin every day that's yeah. they've asked me to and I exercise every day. I walk, and you know, I could have done dances, with <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have been the end of me. If I
12: hadn't. Um, now, can I ask so you now, this morning, though, knowing that there is a man who's still living with, yeah. with a full pig's heart, how did that yeah. make you feel? Does it, does it? Is it sort of, This is a ridiculous. But is it vindication for your choice? Because you were given the choice between pig tissue and a synthetic valve.
6: Yeah, so no, I was given the choice between a mechanical valve. Sorry, mechanical valve. Yeah, and this this tissue valve. And and if you take a mechanical valve, you're on warfarin for the rest of your life, which is a very tough enough um, uh, blood thinner, uh, which you have to get your blood tested uh, every few weeks or every few months. I didn't like that vision of my future, I didn't like it at all. And um, so I argued long and hard for the tissue because the cardiologist was very firm that he thought you'll be grand. The uh, surgeon was more uh, circumspect and saying, you know, if you aren't, grand, if you need this replaced in 12 years' time, which was a possibility, um, you know, it's a big operation. You don't want to put yourself through that. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought long and hard about it. And at the moment, I'm 100% sure that I made the right decision. And all of the scans that we've done have backed that up. And, and it seems to be sitting in and, and I'm very healthy on the yeah. transport and all of that is wonderful. So, okay. you know, that's great. I had what, one moment though; so I had... Um, an echocardiogram where they kind of scan your, your chest and you can see a kind of a little model of your heart and it's beating and mm. um, I was I was actually looking at the aorta the piece that was replaced and I could see it opening and closing in front of my eyes and I was thinking that wasn't in my body when I was born that that little part there is not original equipment <laughs> that we would describe as an engineering term and um, and it's opening and closing yeah. 52 times a minute Yes, and <laughs> keeping me alive. An
12: essential part of your body's machinery now. Yes. Yeah. Very, very essential. Uh, yeah. Very essential.
6: Yeah. I have a little card I carry because of this. I carry with me everywhere. My to, what, to tell cards. people
12: that you have a bit of, sorry, that you have this valve in your, in your heart.
6: Yeah. Right. If something ever happened to me, there are numbers on it that you would ring and it would give you the details. But it has a model number and everything. I've got the model number <laughs> 3300 <Right>. TFX. <3-300-0-GFX. laughs>
12: <laughs> right. That's well, the model number of my
9: valve.
12: Yeah. So, so we, we know, obviously, that that works because you are living proof of it. And there are yeah. thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people around the world who yeah. have the same. Now, now the eyes yeah. of the world are on this guy, David Bennett, handyman from Maryland, age 57, to see what happens yeah. in the next few days and, and weeks. And yeah. we, we wish him well.
0: Tom Dunn on the Radar C Show. Constant, niggling uncertainty has been the one constant during the pandemic. Unprecedented times, with capital letters. Joining Ryan this morning, Dr Jonathan Egan from NUIG's psychology department was on hand to define uncertainty and gave us tools to grapple with it.
4: So let's say I say I want to go to Iceland, which I've been trying to go for, yeah. for two years. Oh, yeah. And I've always wanted to go. I've never been before. I've been reading lots of fiction about it and all the rest of it. And I was all very excited about trying to go. Yeah. And every time I think I might go, I'll say, well, if I if I get... My uncertainty is if I go there and I'd say three or four nights, uh, three or four nights because yeah. I'd have to come back yeah. for, for TV commitments, obviously.
9: Okay, yeah.
4: And yeah. then I go, if, if I get, for whatever reason, it's highly unlikely, but if I got, mm-hmm. say, the virus over there, I had to self-isolate for five days or seven mm-hmm. days whatever it might be then I'm I'm in trouble over here work-wise and you know so therefore I just say well, yeah. I, I can't take the risk but that's look this is a first world very comfortable sense of uncertainty I'm not talking we'll get into the heavier stuff in a minute but that's as you say it that that's an example of it
3: An example uh, so it's really broken down to two types of things one is perspective anxiety which you're describing there Ryan it's that um, it'll fr- frustrate you uh, to look ahead and, and not be able to to um, be sure that you'll be able to present on the uh, Late Late Show or on in the morning. Um, they want to be sure about your future and you can't be given that right now during, during Omicron. And the second one is what's called inhibitory anxiety and this is more important really this is yourself and that's it's it uncertainty keeps me from living a full life. Now if that is a problem if one of your true desires is to go to Iceland I'd ask you to really sit down with yourself and go you know if, you're, if you really plan and consider all the planning options such as bringing a good laptop, bringing a good headphones, that you can actually do it in Iceland, I'm sure they've got Wi-Fi in Iceland, um, that you would be able to cover the radio part, so maybe the, the time of week you travel over and have a shorter trip might yeah. be more feasible, yeah. but it's about are, are you stopping yourself, are you getting into analysis paralysis, so if that occurs, that's not healthy, and what usually is good is talk to a mentor or a peer who, you know, who's done this type of thing, who may, maybe has travelled and, 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 and can be a bit of a, a guide to you, a mentor. Mm. And that will help you explore your options, the pros and cons, in a more. See, when we get frightened, we go into black and white thinking. It's all adrenaline or adrenaline, cortisol, and we get into brain fog, and we can't think creatively. We can't think. It's all. I'll be safer in danger. That's what happens to our thinking process.
4: So take it to then a more a more realistic <coughs> and practical level for people uh, about, for example, schools. And this isn't a. Conversation about the school story in, yeah. in in Ireland today, but it's more about the the psychology behind that, as you know, Jonathan. Yeah. And and you know, parents going, should I? You know, for, particularly with Omicron, you're going. Omicron is quite a mm. is, is quite a tricky proposition because it's yeah. not, as I said yesterday, it's not. A, it doesn't strike me as being a, a variant of destruction, but rather one of yeah. disruption. And the the point I'm making is that you say. Well, if I send my kids in, the chances are they might get it. And I'm still a bit confused as to whether or not schools are safe because that's messaging there has been a little bit peculiar. And do they bring it home? And if they bring it home, can I keep a child in a room for 10 or do we are we all going to get it? And then what about granny who's got an underlying illness? Uh, See, this this is it. This is probably the thought process for so many people and it's contagious.
3: Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's contagious. And in fact, if you think about it, you know, the, a couple of months ago, only 2% of the tests, the, the PCR tests, were come back positive, which yeah. meant probably about 70% of us were, were developing neurotic kind of... Well, not neurotic. The government was telling us to focus on certain symptoms. focus on certain symptoms, And because of that, then we start focusing on whether we find it difficult to swallow, shortness of breath, if we've got headaches, if we've got pains in our muscles. and And, and what we do is we focus on that. And if you ask somebody to focus on maybe like swallowing six times in a row yeah. over the next five minutes it's very hard to do but then you suddenly go oh god I feel a bit of a what we call globus uh, a ball in your throat or I even mean, the cream of veil if, if you my mouth is in my throat or in the French would say there's a frog in my throat so we develop these psychosomatic things when we start to focus. It's a bit like you, if you hold your um, mobile phone for too long to your ear, you suddenly get this, this pain in your arm and you're wondering what well, is this tingling because you've probably been resting on your yeah, your ulnar nerve and uh, the, your, your arm goes a bit uh, numb. So when we get tense and worried about things, our whole body tenses up, both at the muscular level but then also at our gastrointestinal level. So people are prone to maybe migraine, bladder, you know, frequency need to go to the toilet, people with IBS syndrome, that all worsens. And people have your own. For me, it would be more like maybe under very severe stress, I might get a bit nauseous, I might get a migraine. Rarely, a few times a year. But for some people, that get really gets triggered. And we know that people who've had a very uh, maybe environments where they grew up, where they weren't really met as a child and weren't cared for and they weren't soothed, they are more likely to develop these things later on during maybe a COVID pandemic.
4: So, so uncertainty, by what you've said there, if I'm not mistaken, can. Uh, can, can translate into a, f- a physical realisation of the psychological yeah. struggle.
3: Yeah, so the psychological struggle we all have um, is that if you draw a triangle on a piece of paper with the, 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 the point at the bottom, so it's standing on, on the, the um, apex there, mm-hmm. and if you put down at the bottom of the triangle, um, like Ryan, my name is Ryan, mm-hmm. am I being self-compassionate? Do I have joy in my life? Am I able to access sadness? Am I able to have a good cry if I'm feeling sad? Am I able to access anger? If I'm feeling uh, losing somebody, you've lost somebody or someone's died, can I anger, access both anger and sadness? Can I access, and this is a big one, hope. Because we, we recently saw in the Irish Times that about 20% of Irish people don't have hope anymore.
4: That's a big number.
3: And a big number. Because yeah. uh, we usually we're the most optimistic in the world, despite the the, uh, the relevant facts. And then closeness, which is a huge one. During the pandemic, we haven't been able to be close and we haven't been able to, to, to meet and hug and, and look in the eyes. When you go diving with somebody... You, you will cope much better and cope with the breathing aspect of, of diving if you a tr- person by looking at the eyes and the nonverbal verbal y- actions. And then with grief, it means you have to be able to cope with both sadness and anger. So during a pandemic, if you can't access any of those things, and vitality yourself, doing things which you know we enjoy doing, whether it's going to the cinema like you and I on our own or yeah. with other people,
8: mm.
3: and if we can't access any of those, what happens if anxiety goes up? And it's kind of saying to us, you know, Ryan, you're not being yourself, um, you start to worry about it. You might start to get irritable and fight with people. You might just start to clench your teeth or grind them at night. I recommend everyone go to the dentist and get their yearly check at the moment because you've yeah. probably been tense t- 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 your teeth. And also shame and guilt build up. And if that's not managed, Ryan, we start to go into this ruminating, this withdrawal from other people, emotional eating, which a lot of us did. Mm-hmm. And then we've on to emotional shopping. Um, yeah. and, and now we're, we're moving into to other things such as um, getting irritable with people, such as the example you gave with the person with the fridge. You know, so if they came into my therapy room, I would say, OK, let's, let's, let's talk about it. We'll hear the full story. And I go, let's just stop there. Let's really just sit down and think, OK, what's happening inside you? Are you, are you happy? Um, are there people that you can talk to? Is there anybody who's died that we need to talk about in the last 10 years? Let's go back 10 years, you know. Do you feel close to people? Um, do you have hope? What's your sense of who you are as a person? What direction in life? What gives you vitality? For you and I, not being able to go to the cinema was a huge hit at yeah. our vitality level." Um, and, and you know this, this things that like we talked the last time Jerusalem came in and gave a the avail. a veil night I had what 's called Globus Hystericus, is where our 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 ability to swallow our breed kind of gets gets limited based on grief or, or nostalgia yeah. and and I was watching with the children last night um clips of what movies we planned to see. the hope was still there yeah. um, and and <clears throat> we looked at because they they're eleven eleven, nine, and seven yeah two boys and a girl. And we started looking at clips at scene two, and my goodness, um, Jerusalem it hit me again. Bono is the key uh, protagonist, one of the key protagonists with Scarlett Johansson. Yes, yes. She played Ash the Porcupine. And when Stuck in a Moment came on, I think maybe we're, we've all been stuck in a moment for, for two years, a lot of us.
9: Yeah.
3: You two songs, stuck yeah, in a moment great that song, we've just yeah. gotten stuck, that we haven't been able to dislodge, that we're stuck down on the ground and then we need someone to come along and pick us pick us up and say, come on, come on with me. Mm-hmm. And for, for some of us to get stuck in, and to get back into our vitality, we need someone appear, like I said to you, if you're planning to go to Iceland. Someone will take your hand and go, come here, I'll, I'll show you the way. And you, you can sort your decision in the end. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the movie, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And mm-hmm. then that really hit me because I lectured to, to usually the last time I was meant to lecture to 250 students. And I was looking forward to going into to the, the lectern and, and looking up at the 250, maybe 180 would arrive. Mm. But I discovered I was COVID positive. Um, and oh Lord, COVID, I'm sorry COVID to hear that. today. And the whole family are COVID positive.
4: Oh Lord, okay.
3: But, but I, I started to think that the uh, that the that a lot of people are, have have not been able to do that mm. uh, teenage, young adult thing of looking for finding what they're looking for. Yeah. The moving away, taking the skin of their family off, and through discourse to. In love through joy, through drinking a beer or a wine and chatting about things mm. and ideas—that their selfhood has, has been diminished and their uncertainty, because you have to kind of a trajectory, don't you, in your mind, a map of where to go.
4: This is it. I, I I think that when this started and a year, fourteen months into it, mm. it was a lot easier to say we're going to get vaccinated and we're out the door, and I felt very very confident in in saying that at the time. And now as I as I see people saying, Is my second birthday yeah. not being able to do this? I think yeah. if people have a certain age, they're mm-hmm. they're gonna be very wistful about, you know, time and yeah. as as time elapses. And then people with uh, you know people getting married I know this is really important yeah. and and then hitting hitting 17 18 21 yeah. all, all these big events you know what I'm talking about essentially and that's before yeah. we even get to the sadness of, of, of those those quiet funerals and yeah. I think that as we had towards two years of this um yeah. you mentioned a word there I wrote down which was irritability mm. uh, there it, initially I could we could we could probably put up with a bit of it but yeah, people yeah. have become increasingly irritable and yeah, yeah. the lack of patience, whether it's with... I mean, I was in the chemistry saying yeah. this before uh, Christmas and the staff gathered around, about six yeah. of them gathered around to talk to me and said, would you please ask your listeners to be patient with, with people yeah, who yeah, are working yeah, behind yeah. the counter? I couldn't believe it. And they really were, I could see they were, they were upset in their eyes because they were yeah. also being treated really badly by people yeah, who yeah. are lacking hope, 20%. Mm. We are lacking um, certainty, which is why we're here today, mm-hmm. Jonathan. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, So it, it is a phenomenon, I think, and, and it's not just us talking gobbledygook.
3: Well, think of the, the antithesis of that, I had a, a healthcare shock over the summer. But after getting over it and all the operations needed to occur, I went and thanked the team and gave them some wine and chocolate. And I could see lips starting to move and tears in the eyes. And mm-hmm. I said, hang on, do you guys not get thanks? I think they've been a great team. It was the maxillofacial team in, in in University Hospital Galway, um, and the nurses. And uh, you know, got thanks, Do you got praise, and they just kind of they shook their heads. And I said, "That's what the example of what you're saying uh, at a lower case where people are less in, in severe need in in a pharmacy, hopefully, but whereas compared to people visiting or being in hospital." So the anger is coming out now. If we think about it from attachment theory, when we're not being met as a person. When our needs emotionally aren't being met, which, for example, women who go in to have babies and their partner can't be there, the partner's part of the system, and, and the, the system of, of uh, w- the way we think about it is wrong. It's like I remember meeting the, the um, neuroendocrinologist in UHG, and he's saying, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, "Well, the mother—the notion thing is a baby, and the notion thing is mother. As a mother and baby, as Winnicott would, or as a uh, uh, and that would say." It, it's that's the system you're looking at. So a lot of people's emotional closeness needs aren't being met and what we do is become very angry. Mm. The second way we get angry is being frustrated and not being able to meet the goals and that's for me particularly. Yes. It's where I'm not able to get into my lecture which I love to do and I want to inspire the, the students and get their, their mojo going, their juices flowing and, mm. and their thinking flowing to really aliven them um, and, and that's really hard to do on a Zoom. And so and there's, that's also another thing people do work on Zoom all the time. It, it doesn't really stand in. It, it's a bit like The Emperor's New Clothes. So we, we can't, we can't really... Um, and I, that's why I feel for teachers, so people can give out about teachers, but they've been asked to go into a classroom where they know there might be 25 people um, and there might be some room ventilation. But these, these children, as we know, from the, the age to 12-year-olds, are carrying a lot more the the, the um, Omicron virus. So I can actually feel they have a right to be that anxious, you know? And, yeah. and it's a bit like they've all already been New close as a child. And, and it'll stick in their that, you know, that, that, you know, hang on. I've been put in a, a bit like the nurses. I've been put in that place now. That's my, it's my turn now, so please... I think we need to be uh, more caring, more compassionate, and go, yeah, they have, they have a bit of a hard deal at the moment. And, and yeah, the science isn't really that that, that well there, you know. They haven't done RCTs at schools with and without, you know. Um, so we have to be more compassionate, as you're saying, and to catch yourself. If you're about to bite, say, okay, what am I missing? Am I missing uh, love? Am I missing uh, my vitality? I'm not going to play bridge online. That's why I'm going the bark at the pharmacy behind the, the, be the country.
4: Yeah, um, I'm absolutely. I'm not, uh, You know, there's in in other developments like a text. A couple of texts have come in talking about young people, yeah. um, uh, and and climate change uh, and eco anxiety. Yeah. Now there'll be yeah. people listening and going, "I've never heard the like in my life." But actually, for this generation, it's very serious because people. Like me and older people, <coughs> and many won't be around yeah. to 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 pick up the pieces that we've left behind, as it, as it were. Whereas that's their job as the generation incoming and their children and their grandchildren, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but 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 eco anxiety, you know, we're we're talking about uncertainty. There's mm-hmm. there's one of the greatest global uncertainties of them all. Well,
3: definitely. And for me, when I grew up in the 80s in Blackrock in Dublin, the well, we used to talk as children to each other about the parents didn't know this was the nuclear bomb, yes, um, the yeah. this, this nuclear war, what would we do? <laughs> if you're a teenager, at 13, you hadn't kissed them, who would you kiss first in the group? All these kind of the questions. Um, and, uh, you know, what would you do? What would you do if you only had 24 hours to live? For them, for them it's more distal and abstract and more uncertain future, as we're talking about uncertainty. So it's more difficult. And, and is it, kind of the, the scientists coming out with these, these facts, and the children are getting... Uh, obviously in the idealist phase of life wanting to do something about it and feeling the chagrin of the government, you know, as governments do, just take a long time to, to, it's like like a a giant ship to yaw towards another direction. Um, But I I suppose, and that's reality, so the reality testing is there. And there's something about adults talking to the kids and going, you know, adults don't know it all, really. No, that's
4: for sure. That is the great (laughs) revelation of getting older is we know less and less than we ever thought anyone ever knew.
3: Yeah. It's like watching the, the thing with his kids. And we all cuddle up on the couch because four of us, the five, have, have COVID. And my little kid went, isn't this great, Daddy? Isn't this great? Yeah. Isn't this great? And I went, yeah, it is. It, this really is great. And so it's about making lemonade out of lemons. Sure.
0: Dr Jonathan Egan making lemonade out of lemons on today's Ryan Tuberty Show. Image is everything. And when we see our favourite super spy sipping on something or a TV heartthrob cycling something, possibly to his death, there'll naturally be a bit of a bump in sales. And now with streaming services and the decline in traditional advertising methods, there's a huge new push for product placement. Explained to us on Today with Claire Byrne by Julie Sciro, Assistant Professor in Marketing at UCD's Smurfit School of Business.
13: Product placement is a way for brands to advertise that is nearly impossible for the viewer to skip or ignore as we do with so many other ads and brands, because it's embedded in the content itself. And the psychology of how it works is really interesting. And at its most basic level, it comes down to the power of familiarity. So let me give you an example in 1997. Mars bars saw a huge uptick in their sales for no discernible reason. So they couldn't figure out what was going on until they linked it to NASA. So NASA was launching the Pathfinder mission to Mars, and this was all over the news. So you heard the word Mars everywhere. Um, And so even though Mars bars aren't named after the planet, they're named after the founder, whose last name is Mars. Mars.
8: That is extraordinary. And that resulted in Mars bar sales increasing.
13: That's right. So (laughs) it's not that people were making a conscious connection per se, but the concept of Mars was more top of mind. So that means that it's easier to see on the shelf. So typically when something's more top of mind, you notice it more in your environment. And we see that also correlate with sales. So product placement works in the same way. It builds familiar- oh, sorry, it builds familiarity and it can make the brand more top of mind. And I think,
8: you know, we are now maybe I'm just speaking to myself for myself now but we're more aware, aren't we when we see a drinks brand or a particular phone being used I think that we now get it that we're being sold this product particularly on the streaming services now but that doesn't mean that the next time I walk into a shop I'm going to say oh well I know they're trying to sell me that so I'm not going to buy it. It's probably going to encourage me to buy it despite the fact that I'm aware that I being overtly sold this on uh, in a product placement way.
13: That's right because familiarity is so powerful.
8: Let me talk to you about the Sex and the City example that I mentioned in the introduction Julie the Peloton example because this was controversial because Peloton said we knew that our, our bike was going to be used in this show we didn't know how it was going to be used. Now I, for one, I don't know how you feel. I'm sceptical about that, that you wouldn't ask how the machine was going to be used in the programme.
13: Right. So, and unfortunately we won't know, but... And um, according to them, they were surprised.
8: Mm-hmm. Because
13: we know that uh, Mr.
8: Big died as a result of using the Peloton bike. He had a heart attack. Then Peloton responded to that by making an ad, sort of tongue in cheek ad afterwards. And I suppose we have to ask whether all of that uh, was planned. But listen, pro- product placements, we know, can be very subtle. We just see the product being used, but it's not talked about. But often it's not the case. It's less subtle. Let's take a listen to an example now in the TV series Friends.
9: It's my new apothecary table. Ross, no, Stevie's gonna be here any second. She cannot see this. Oh, why not? She'll she'll love it. It's the real thing. No. I got it at Pottery Barn. I know you did. I bought the same one. And if she sees your table, she's gonna know that I lied to her. I told her that ours was an original. Why did you do that? Because she hates Pottery Barn. She hates Pottery Barn. <laughs> I know, I know. She says it's all mass produced. Nothing is authentic and everyone winds up having the same stuff.
8: So despite the fact, Julie, that they're being derogatory about the Pottery Barn brand, you think that that's still going to be beneficial?
13: I do. And I I think you could say the the same about Peloton as well, because I, I think we tend to focus on the negative association and forget the fact that in that Friends example, you know, part of the discussion is that Pottery Barn is seen as valued by one of the characters. And if we look at Peloton, um, you know, Big and Carrie are both two very successful characters that, have, that are known for having discerning tastes and a of, love of luxury brands. So the fact that they have a Peloton says something to the consumer as well. So you do get these very complex associations. And the fact that you're getting that familiarity... Um, again, is really important because over time, those negative associations can become disassociated with the brand name. So what happens is you can get what's called a sleeper effect over time where that exposure actually becomes more persuasive as you kind of forget your initial cognitions of, you know, any kind of negative association let's
8: take a listen to another example now this is the Netflix series Stranger Things Coca-Cola playing a fairly significant role in this let's hear it how do you even drink that? because it's delicious what? it's like Carpenter's The Thing the original is the classic
6: no question about it but the remake sweeter bolder
7: better you're insane So you prefer the original thing? What? No, I'm not talking about the thing. I'm talking about New Coke. It's the same concept, dude. Uh, Actually, it's not the same concept. It is the same concept. No, it's not. Yes, it is.
8: So it's a little bit harder maybe to ascertain the gain there for Coca-Cola because that programme is set in 1985. New Coke, I don't know, can you get New Coke now anymore? Probably not. That's uh, uh, gone. So what... What benefit of that, uh, Julie? What benefit to Coca-Cola is that conversation that we just heard?
13: Well, one thing that I noticed um, with New Coke is if you go on on Google Trends, which shows you what people are searching, you see this huge spike in people searching for both Stranger Things and New Coke at the same time. So you're getting a lot of exposure for the brand Coca-Cola. And while Coca-Cola is a really well-known brand, a lot of marketing and brand building is about kind of the long-term game. gain. So if you think about it in terms of working out, Coca-Cola needs to advertise consistently over time to maintain the health of their brand. Can they
8: ascertain, all of these brands, just how effective product placement is? Is it measurable?
13: It is, but it is going to be different for every situation. So there's a couple considerations that you have to To take into consideration the first one is is the product that's being advertised low effort or or high effort so something like a candy bar would be considered a low effort product because it's not one that we think a lot about before we make the decision it's not very expensive but a high effort product that would be more like a peloton because those are very expensive so that means that people are going to spend a lot more time considering a, a lot of different sources before they make the purchase. So that's one consideration. But the other is how long was the product on screen? How well integrated was it into the story? How well was it positioned um, in a sort of usage case that I as a consumer would find myself in? So there's a lot of of variables to consider. And a lot of times looking at the effectiveness is something you have to look over a very long time horizon, something like a year or, or longer.
8: So if somebody, if a character in a film is drinking a particular drink and then they they move on, that might not be as effective as, say, going back again to the Peloton example, where the product is built into the storyline, it becomes a character almost.
13: Exactly. And it's the same with New Coke, actually, I would say. It's not just that the characters are drinking it and then we move on to another scene. They're talking about it. We also see Eleven practicing her telekinesis on it. So it's a lot more of a focus. So you get a lot more exposures, but it also helps for memory.
8: We have an email in here. I don't know if you'd agree with this, uh, Julie. Undoubtedly, this listener says one of the most memorable and effective product placements in recent movie history was Hershey Chocolates' use of Reese's Pieces Sweets in Steven Spielberg's blockbuster E.T. Is that held up as a good example?
13: Absolutely, it is. I mean, the fact that we're talking about it today, so many years later, I, I think says everything. And
8: uh, another one, a current one, people may be watching Emily in Paris. I haven't seen this one. I know it's on Netflix. A lot of product placement in there, is there? There is. I would say
13: it's also a great ad for Paris, by the way.
8: (laughs) Yeah, but you know, because the model has changed now, and as you were saying, advertising has changed, and this is the way that these products can find an audience. The audience can't skip if they want to watch the show. That's the
13: advantage for the advertiser, isn't it? That's right. And you also get the reach. So a show like Emily in Paris has, you know, 58 million household reach. Uh, What
8: other famous examples can you bring us from the big blockbuster movies? Because they're not immune to product placement either.
13: Oh, absolutely not. Quite the contrary. I would say probably one of the other really famous examples is Castaway with Tom Hanks. Um, Oh, the Wilson Ball. Wilson Ball, that's right. So approximately 100 million people have seen this movie and Wilson was spoken by the protagonists something like 34 times. And so, I mean, that was a perfect example of it being truly integrated into the storyline.
0: Julie Skiro, assistant professor in marketing at UCD's Smurfit School on Today with Claire Byrne. And finally... A swear jar with a difference, on the news at one. Brian Dobson explained.
9: It's now a two euro charge for anyone using the COVID word in the Alt Bar in Calais. It was introduced on Friday night by managers uh, Connor McDevitt uh, and uh, by Connor Moore, and uh, he's on the line now. Very uh, good afternoon to you, Connor, and thanks for for taking taking our call. So you you just had enough of COVID talk, I guess.
14: Brian, that's what it was. It was just. Um we just decided that as this table service here, we're getting involved in everybody's conversation and we sort of knew what everybody was chatting about. And it usually went back to the virus. No matter what they started talking about, it was back to the virus. So we just thought we'd try and bring in an atmosphere that people were talking about common things. Like it's quite strange that people aren't chatting about the well or Ireland anymore. They're chatting about the virus, so it was just nice to see people chatting about normal things like football and just daily events going on. So it was just, it was just to try and bring, change the atmosphere of the bar and make it more upbeat and give people that place where they can go and relax. And, and
9: so, and so a, men- a mention of COVID uh, costs you two euro. <clears throat> and uh, well, I mean, I'm looking at the figure here, but perhaps you can confirm it for us. You've raised a fair bit so far, a lot of two euros. We've
14: uh, two hundred and. 80 euro raised now so if you break that down it's 140 times somebody's used the word in the bar so it's it's going up and up so it's all going to a great cause so it'll all go to
9: Donegal Hospice
14: Donegal Hospice yeah it's a charity close to my heart as my mother was up there so I know they do a fabulous job um so every penny raised there's a lot of people ringing donating and it wasn't really set up for that it was just if you come in the bar and you mention uh the virus now, that word we see. I'm, I'm trying not to say it here. So, <laughs>
9: <laughs> oh, you're in the bar, so you'd have to put the two euro in. Sorry. Exactly. Um, but but to tell me, so what? What have I mean? With with this injunction in place, then what have people been talking about that they mightn't otherwise be discussing? The things that have they've got forgotten over the last couple of years. Just chatting
14: about how people have got on over Christmas and um, how they're getting on at work. Yeah. How their their family members are. Um,
9: it's very if hard there, though to avoid the pandemic, yeah. isn't it? Because work, yeah, family, yeah. all of it ends up sort of back there. Again. Every
14: everything rolls back. If you're chatting about football, you're chatting I about all, yeah. you can't you can't have crowds in football because of it. If you're talking about where you went, they're saying this has been enforced, and there, so it all goes back to it. Like so, it yeah. is very hard to avoid. But we do notice people putting up a lot of time and effort. Well, they,
9: they chat about other things, which is very good. Like. Well, that's a good that's a good cause in itself, and uh, good luck with uh, with that, uh, Connor.
0: Connor may have avoided the fine there, but by my reckoning, Brian owes him €6. Euro. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening and take care.